Welcome to the Tudors Dynasty podcast. My name is Rebecca Larson, owner of TudorsDynasty.com, and you have found my podcast. I took last week off to visit my family a few hours away, and so this week I wanted to give you something a little different. Today, we're going to look at types of executions and victims of King Henry VIII. As usual, before I begin, I must thank those who have helped to get me to where I am today. First and foremost, my Patreon subscribers. Without your monthly donations, I would not be able to give you this podcast. All the money that is received goes right back into the show, the cost involved in running my website, and research materials to ensure you get proper facts. This week, I'd like to give a special shout out to my newest patrons, Joy and Carol. Thank you, ladies, and welcome to the family. I'd also like to thank those who have made one-time donations through my PayPal account. Thank you so much. If you feel you'd like to make a donation as well, you can go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Tutors Dynasty and click Become a Patron. You can choose the monthly level that fits your budget. For as little as a dollar per month, you can join my inner circle of friends. Thank you to those of you who have been with me from the beginning. Welcome back to those who came in somewhere in the middle. And for those of you who are new to this podcast, welcome. Now sit back, turn up the volume, close your eyes, and let's transport back in time to the reign of King Henry VIII. When it comes to English monarchs, none is more revered or despised than Henry VIII. The masses are torn on whether to love him or hate him. Henry VIII did many great things for England during his reign, but the flip side of that is that he also did many more despicable things to offset the good, and that's what most of the history books tend to remember. Here are some of the good things about Henry that we should remember. Henry allowed the Bible to be translated into English. This, for the 16th century, was quite controversial. In his act of succession, he allowed his two daughters, Mary and Elizabeth, to follow his son. His daughter Mary became the first queen regnant in English history. Henry VIII was one of the founders of the English Royal Navy, and he helped to grow the number of ships within it exponentially. He was also quite musical. While Henry VIII has been credited for writing Greensleeves, it is highly disputed that he actually did. But what he did write at the beginning of his reign was a song called Pastime with Good Company, or The King's Ballad. He was a very talented musician. Take a listen to a part of The King's Singers performing it via a YouTube channel that I found. I'll share a link to it in my corresponding article as well. Henry was quite the builder as well. I'm not sure of the exact number, it may have been at least a dozen, but he compares to the most prolific monarch builder, King Edward I. The difference between the two men was that Henry's building was done very quickly, often making his men work overnight by candlelight and fires, so many of his buildings no longer stand today. Lastly, he gave the world Queen Elizabeth I. Need I say more? Now, when we look at the not-so-flattering side of King Henry, we quickly go to the fact that he married six times and that he executed two of his wives. It wasn't only his wives that he executed, but he also executed friends like Thomas More and Thomas Cromwell, both of which he regretted deeply later on. Oh, and if you had any claim in your bloodline to the throne of England, he'd also execute you. 
The number of executions during the reign of Henry VIII has been estimated to upwards to 72,000. That number is highly over-exaggerated. If you consider the population of England during the reign of King Henry was about 2.5 million people, that would mean that Henry executed about 2.8% of the population of England. Then we'd have to take into account how many people died of the plague and the sweating sickness as well as battles. There would be like two people left. Okay, maybe a few more, but you get where I'm going with this. There is, however, a list on Wikipedia of Protestants executed under Henry VIII. That list totals 63 victims from 1530 to 1546. So while King Henry executed a lot of people, I definitely question the 72,000 number that's been floating around. Executions during the reign of Henry VIII weren't always the same. There were many ways to execute a person. There was death by pressing. The victim would have a large plank placed over their body to which weight would be steadily added to. This would lead to broken bones and eventually suffocation. Pressing was another great way to torture a person. Another way that one could have been executed during the reign of Henry VIII was by being boiled alive. A statute was passed in England in 1531 by Henry VIII that made willful murder by means of poison, high treason, and punishable by death by boiling. It was the action of one Richard Roos, cook of John Fisher, Bishop of Rochester, that prompted this measure. In February 1531, Roos poisoned the porridge of Rochester and his guest. But it wasn't only those in the household at the time who received the poisoned porridge, but also the poor who had gathered outside to collect alms. They were given whatever was left over from the meal. All those that ate the food became extremely ill, and two people actually died. Rochester had not eaten, so he was spared. But when Roos was arrested, he claimed that he had put a laxative in the porridge as a joke and meant no harm. A joke? Not really the kind of thing one should do as a joke. The boiling of Roos was held in front of the public. Here's a quote about the event from The Men and Women of the English Reformation by S.H. Burke. He roared mighty loud, says an old chronicle, and divers women who were big with child did feel sick at the sight of what they saw, and were carried away half dead. And other men and women did not seem frightened by the boiling alive, but would prefer to see the headsman at his work. The victims of this punishment would have been strung up in a series of pulleys and ropes, hanging precariously over a drum of boiling liquid. The liquid could have been water, tar, oil, wine, or whatever was the king's desire. The executioner would slowly lower the person down into the liquid and then raise them back up to further the punishment and drag out the inevitable. This truly was a merciless way to die. When I think about being hanged, drawn, and quartered, I'm often left wondering how much the victim felt and at what point did they no longer experience pain. This punishment was typically held for those who were found guilty of high treason. Here is a description from the website Capital Punishment UK. It says, First, the prisoner was dragged behind a cart from their jail or prison to where the execution was to take place. Once there, the prisoner was hanged in the normal way, but cut down while still conscious. The penis and testicles were cut off and the stomach was slit open. The intestines and heart were removed and burned before them. The other organs were torn out and finally the head was cut off and the body divided into four quarters. 
The head and quarters were parboiled to prevent them rotting too quickly and then displayed upon the city gates as a grim warning to all. At some point in this agonizing process, the prisoner inevitably died of strangulation and or hemorrhage and or shock and the damage to vital organs. I'm fairly certain that when the heart was removed, they were dead. Being burned at the stake was a common method of execution for centuries, and not just in England. This included piling small sticks of wood around a large stake. The fire would be lit, and hopefully the victim passed out from the smoke prior to their flesh burning. One of the most notable cases of being burned at the stake was that of Anne Askew. Anne Askew was burned at the stake for her religious beliefs. She was a Protestant, and the powers that be were attempting to get Anne to implicate Queen Catherine Parr. She did not. Anne had been unfairly racked till her bones and joints were almost plucked asunder, in such sort as she was carried away in a chair. When it came time for her execution, Anne was brought to the stake. She was tied around her waist to the pole so that it held her limp body upright. It is believed that Anne did not suffer long because gunpowder had been placed near her body to end her suffering. The form of execution that we hear the most about is death by beheading. This is how both Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard were executed, along with many others. The act was usually done by axe, and in at least one special case, it was done by sword. Most believe this was the most merciful way to die, quick and painless. Well, unless you were Thomas Cromwell or Margaret Pole, that is. There were some instances when King Henry opted for a simpler execution, death by hanging. Most hangings were done at Tyburn. When the prisoner was brought to the gallows, they would have been greeted by a large crowd that sometimes grew to a 100,000 people. Among the people would have been those selling food and souvenirs. The gallows was a common place for pickpockets to grow their wealth amongst the crowd. When the prisoner or prisoners were led to the gallows, the hangman would uncoil the free end of the rope from them and throw it up to one of the assistants on the beam above, who then tied it to the beam, leaving very little slack. Ropes were also tied to carts or stools from which the prisoner stood, and the other end was attached to a horse. At the time of the execution, the horses were whipped away, pulling the prisoner off the carts and leaving them suspended. They would only have a few inches of drop at the most, and thus many of them would writhe in convulsive agony for some moments after, their legs paddling in the air, dancing the Tyburn jig, as they called it, until unconsciousness overtook them. The hangman, his assistants, and sometimes the prisoner's relatives might pull on the prisoner's legs to hasten their end. Now that we've covered the types of executions, let's take a look at the most notable ones during the reign of Henry VIII. King Henry began his reign by executing two of his father's most unpopular officials, Edmund Dudley, yes, he was kin to Robert Dudley, his grandfather, and Robert Empson in 1510. These two men didn't stand a chance under the reign of the new young King Henry VIII. King Henry used their execution as a way to set the tone for his reign. He wanted to be liked, and he knew by removing these two men that his subjects would rejoice in him. Many people blamed both Empson and Dudley for the difficulty they had during the reign of King Henry VII. That King Henry was notorious for taxing his subjects, and many believed it was Empson and Dudley who were to blame. Empson and Dudley were executed on the 17th of August, 1510, on Tower Hill, presumably by beheading. 
Richard Empson and Edmund Dudley together became names associated with Henry VII's ruthless scheme of excessive taxation. For their success during the reign of Henry VII, they paid the ultimate price, their life, under the rule of the new king, Henry VIII. Edmund de la Pole was the son of John de la Pole and Elizabeth Plantagenet. She was the sister of King Edward IV and Richard III. After the execution of Edward Plantagenet, Earl of Warwick, in 1499, Edmund de la Pole was the next York claimant to the throne. Edmund's brother, the Earl of Lincoln, was killed in the attempted Simnel Rebellion, which shed a bad light on his entire family. Plus, when John de la Pole died, Edmund had requested he receive the Dukedom of Suffolk, which Henry VIII denied. Outwardly, de la Pole appeared loyal. However, he was upset when Henry refused him the dukedom after his father's death. In 1501, Suffolk, along with his brother Richard, fled to the court of the Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian. Supporters of the York family gathered around the Earl of Suffolk and Flanders in the knowledge that they were safe under the protection of Maximilian. Henry had no choice but to act decisively. Not only was there an obvious threat to him developing in Flanders, he had lost his eldest son, Arthur, to illness. Prince Henry, at the time, was also far from being a strong boy, and his third son, Edmund, had already died. Henry had to demonstrate that he was a strong and well-established king. Suffolk's relations, who had remained in England, were all arrested and imprisoned. In January 1504, 51 men were attained, the largest number in one single action in Henry's reign. Sir James Tyrell, a former constable of the Tower, was executed. He had been governor of Guinness when Suffolk had fled there, and this was enough to seal his fate. Maximilian agreed to a treaty in 1502 to not back Edmund de la Pole, should he make an attempt for the English throne. Then in 1506, when Philip of Burgundy, Philip the Handsome, was blown off course and unexpectedly became a guest, along with his wife, Juana of Castile, of King Henry VII, he was at the mercy of the desperate English king. Since Philip and his wife needed to set sail back to Castile, they were at Henry VII's mercy. Henry convinced Philip to hand over Edmund de la Pole so long as he only imprisoned him and did not harm him. Unfortunately, his son, King Henry VIII, did not follow through on those instructions. And on the 30th of April, 1513, he had de la Pole executed. Edward Stafford was the son of Henry Stafford, 2nd Duke of Buckingham, and his wife, Catherine Woodville. Catherine was the sister of Elizabeth Woodville, who was queen consort to King Edward IV. When Elizabeth Woodville married the King of England, her kin were lucky enough to be given good marriages, titles, and land. Her sister Catherine was no exception. At roughly seven years old, just before the coronation of her sister, Catherine was married to Henry Stafford. Stafford was merely 11 years old. An Italian ambassador at the time wrote that Edward Stafford resented having to marry someone of such low birth. This was a common sentiment at the time at English court. Many resented the Woodville family and regarded them as upstarts. Forty-four years after their marriage and five monarchs later, Edward Stafford found himself in a heap of trouble. As a descendant of Edward III, Stafford had what some believed to be a stronger claim to the throne since the Tudor's claim was through an illegitimate line. If something were to happen to the king and his daughter Mary, then Stafford would be considered next in line to succeed to the throne of England. After Henry VIII heard of these claims, he ordered an investigation. It's treason to speak of, yet imagine the death of the king. 
On the 8th of April, 1521, the Duke was ordered to London from his castle at Thornbury. He set out for the court, seemingly unaware of any danger that may lie ahead. He was greatly shocked when he was arrested and brought to the tower. At his trial, he was charged with imagining and compassing the death of the king through seeking out prophecy from a monk named Nicholas Hopkins regarding the chances of the king having a male heir. The evidence to back this up was supposedly obtained from disgruntled former members of the duke's household. Stafford denied all charges. A jury of 17 of his peers led by the Duke of Norfolk found him guilty. It was reported that Norfolk wept when the verdict was read. The secretary of the Venetian ambassador in England described the events on the day of Stafford's execution. This morning, the Duke of Buckingham was taken from the tower to the scaffold, at the usual place of execution, with a guard of 500 infantry. He addressed the populace in English. Then, on his knees, he recited his penitential psalms, and with the greatest composure calling the executioner, requested that he would dispatch him quickly and forgave him, after which he took off his gown, and having had his eyes blindfolded, he laid his neck on the block, and the executioner, with a woodman's axe, severed his head from his body with three strokes. The corpse was immediately placed in a coffin and carried to the church of the Austin Friars, accompanied by six friars and all the infantry. As with Edmund de la Pole, Edward Stafford would not be the last of those with royal blood and viable claims to the crown of England to be executed. Elizabeth Barton is best known as the Nun of Kent, and then later the Mad Maid of Kent. Her prophecies were ultimately her downfall. In 1525, at 19 years old, she became ill and fell into trances having visions of marvelous holiness in rebuke of sin and vice. A local priest by the name of Richard Master believed in Barton's visions and reported them to the Archbishop of Canterbury, William Warham. From there, the story of the prophetic girl grew and grew. Eventually, Barton left her job as a servant and became a Benedictine nun. She continued to have visions and began to be known as the Nun of Kent. It was when she started prophesying about the King of England that she got into some hot water. Elizabeth Barton was not alone. Also implicated in her downfall were six monks. Barton would eventually confess that she was the cause of all of this mischief, and by her falsehood deceived all these persons, but this did not save them. At that point it was too late, and there was too much evidence to prove their involvement. On the 20th of April, 1534, Barton and five of the monks were all drawn on a hurdle from the Tower of London to Tyburn. At Tyburn, they were hanged and beheaded with their heads set on London Bridge or at the gates of the city, which was customary to warn off others from participating in similar antics. One of the monks received a stay of execution and was pardoned. It is believed that he signed the Oath of Succession. Elizabeth Barton was around 28 years old when she was executed. In the summer of 1535, not only were Sir Thomas More and Bishop John Fisher executed, but also three monks. All five men refused to swear the oath of supremacy and acknowledge King Henry VIII as supreme head of the Church of England. Their penalty was death. The monks were all hanged, drawn, and quartered, while More and Fisher were beheaded. 1536 was a big year for executions in England. George Boleyn, Francis Weston, Mark Sweeten, Henry Norris, William Brereton, and Anne Boleyn were all executed as part of the campaign to bring down Queen Anne. The men were all executed on the 17th and Anne on the 19th of May. They were all beheaded. The men by axe and Anne more mercifully by sword. 
1537, the pilgrimage of grace warranted Henry to execute more people, including Robert Ask and many of those involved in the uprising. Also in 1537, Thomas Fitzgerald, 10th Earl of Kildare, and five Fitzgerald uncles, James, Oliver, Richard, John, and Walter, were executed at Tyburn for treason and rebellion. Thomas had renounced his allegiance to Henry VIII. On the 3rd of February, 1537, the remaining Fitzgerald men who had been in prison were executed as traitors at Tyburn. They were hanged, drawn, and quartered. Thomas Cromwell had, after the death of Henry Percy, 6th Earl of Northumberland in 1537, marked his property as his own. After the Pilgrimage of Grace, many conservative nobles were accused of treason, including Edward Neville, who was arrested on the 3rd of November, 1538, for conspiracy, along with his cousin Henry Pole, who was the son of Margaret Pole. They were charged with high treason for conspiracy with Henry's exiled brother, Cardinal Reginald Pole. Neville was sent to the Tower, tried at Westminster, and beheaded on the 8th of December, 1538, at Tower Hill. The following day, on the 9th of December, 1538, Henry Courtney, 1st Marcus of Exeter, who was also convicted of being part of the Exeter Uprising and corresponding with Reginald Pole, was beheaded on the Tower Hill. Then on the 9th of January, 1539, the last man to be charged with high treason for their involvement in the Exeter Uprising, Henry Pohl, 1st Baron Montague, was executed on Tower Hill. Then in March, 1539, the king had another close friend of his, Sir Nicholas Carew, Knight of the Garter and Master of the King's Horse, executed by beheading for treason against the king. July, 1540, saw another execution of a man that Henry VIII would greatly regret. Thomas Cromwell, newly appointed Earl of Essex. Unfortunately for Cromwell, the executioners thought to have been either an amateur or have been out the night before drinking heavily because he did quite a number on the man. Chronicler Edward Hall wrote that, And then made he his prayers, which was long, but not so long as both godly and learned, and after committed his soul into the hand of God, and so patiently suffered the stroke of the axe by a ragged and butcherly miser, which very ungoodly performed the office. If you were ever to read through Edward Hall's chronicles, you may also believe that Henry VIII had executed 72,000 people, because at moments while reading it, it feels like that's all he wrote about. In 1541, 32 years into the reign of King Henry VIII, it was another busy year of executions. Now back in 1540, several members of the Plantagenet household in Calais were arrested on suspicion of treason, on the charge of plotting to betray the town to the French. One of them was the illegitimate son of King Edward IV, Arthur Plantagenet, Lord Lyle. Lyle was eventually released, only to die from a heart attack shortly after. Additional evidence was gathered against Leonard Gray, deputy of Ireland, and so on the 25th of July, he was convicted of treason, and on the 28th, he too was executed. Most notable of all the executions of this time was the elderly Margaret Pole, Countess of Salisbury, in May of 1541. I believe she is the oldest person to be executed at the Tower of London. Salisbury's execution was private, but that doesn't mean there were not witnesses. It just means the number of spectators were far fewer than a public execution. In June of 1541, per Edward Hall's Chronicle, Lord Dacre was led on foot between the two sheriffs of London, from the Tower through the city to Tyburn, where he was strangled, as common murderers usually were. He, along with other men, were charged with the murder of a simple man and an unlawful assembly in Sussex. Then, at the end of 1541, Ralph Egerton, 
Servant to Thomas Audley, Lord Chancellor, was hanged, drawn, and quartered for counterfeiting and using the king's great seal. He died for helping illegals gain citizenship. Also around this time, a child named Richard Meekins, not yet 15, had been heard speaking against the sacrament of the altar, contrary to the six articles. It is believed that the child only repeated words he heard others speak. Bishop Bonner followed the accusations and Meekins was arraigned and charged. He was inevitably burned at the stake. Then at the end of 1541, we also see the arrest of another queen to King Henry VIII, Catherine Howard. Catherine was accused of dissolute living before her marriage with one Francis Derham, and that many had known about their relationship. She was also suspected of having an affair with Thomas Culpepper. All three were arrested, as was Jane Boleyn, Lady Rochford. For their confessions, Culpepper and Derham were executed on the 10th of December. Thomas Risley writes in his chronicle that Culpepper and Derham were drawn from the Tower of London to Tyburn, and there Culpepper, after exhortation, made to the people to pray for him. He, standing on the ground by the gallows, kneeled down and had his head stricken off, and then Derham was hanged, membered, boweled, headed, and quartered. On the 13th of February, 1542, both Catherine Howard and Jane Boleyn were beheaded on the Tower Green by Axe. We'll wrap up our list of notable executions with Anne Eskew by burning in 1546 and then Henry Howard, Earl of Surrey, by beheading in 1546 as well. He was the last notable person executed before the death of King Henry VIII in 1547. That wraps up this podcast on the executions and victims of Henry VIII. I thank you so much for joining me today. We'll see you again next week.